Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us again on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants living in the United States and around the world. I'm very happy to bring to you today another interesting guest. His name is Dr. Reginald Fraction. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, Simone. Can you tell us a bit about your heritage, where your family's from? What's your immigrant story? Well, I don't think it's a straight, a straight line immigrant story. I grew up in Trinidad. I'm the only one of my siblings, uh, nine, there's nine of us. I was the only one that was born outside of Trinidad. So I was born in the U.S., but at a very young age, you know, my mother actually sent me back to Trinidad. So I grew up with, you know, all my brothers and sisters. And it wasn't until I was about, you know, in my early 20s that I leave um, Trinidad. You know, the path that I took, uh, you know, it's just like really kind of a weird one, I guess. But I've had an opportunity to do a lot of different things, you know, uh, since um, since leaving. It's one of those things, you know, I guess, now, you know, later in life, you look back and you have this desire to really kind of nail down your roots and you see the limitations that it has. I think a lot of people of African descent have the same sort of challenge. The story that I've had is that I know my great um, grandparents. I don't know how they ended up in Trinidad, but I know my great grandfather was one of four brothers that somehow ended up in sort of a rural part of Trinidad called Toko. And that's, you know, like the family sort of, you know, origin, uh, at least on my father's side. And so you try to go back and look and see, well, how did they end up in Trinidad? And, and and that's kind of a dead end, you know? So I think a lot of people have that, you know, experience. Um, uh, best that I know is that somehow they were um, recently, either recently freed or came from one of the yeah, French Guyana, you know, one of the, you know, Caribbean um, slaveholding um, countries and ended up in Trinidad. So, yeah. My dad, you know, grew up in this rural area. So when he talked about the tough days, you know, you kind of go out, you know. So, but uh, the only one outside, all my brothers and sisters are still, you know, in Trinidad. And, you know, that's kind of the start of it. Um, Like I said, I came back to the United States in my early 20s. So, um, yeah, that's been an interesting journey. Thanks for sharing. I wonder, what is life like in, in Trinidad? What was it like for you growing up? Um, interesting. You know, when I think back of growing up in Trinidad, I mean, I all, I only have like really kind of fun memories of it. You know, um, obviously, you know, uh, all my early schooling um, was there. In sort of hindsight, I don't know if I was that keen on school back then. I mean, I went. You know, um, like I said, I'm I'm eight of nine kids, 
all my older brothers and sisters as one person after me. And so you kind of went to school, you know, you kind of did what you were supposed to. Carnival is a big part of, uh, you know, the Trinidad culture. Um, so you're always looking forward to that. Um, you know, the holidays are always something, you know, else it's an experience, you know, you have, I guess it would be the Spanish version of Christmas caroling, they call Parang. So you're, you know, look forward to that at Christmas time, you know. And I think one of the big things that I find about Trinidad and I think I'm most appreciative of, I think there's a real an embracing of different cultures and religions, you know. I mean, growing up, I had friends that were Muslim, Hindu, you know, Christian, you know, and you celebrated every, all the holidays. You were invited to their houses, you know, and things like that. And I think, you know, um, once I moved to the U.S., it's something that sort of really stuck with me because there's not a lot of hang-ups or this conflict that, you know, you often see with people of, you know, different ethnicities or religions and things like that. I mean, I'm not saying Trinidad is all its problems, but... I think I'm really, really appreciative of that, that I grew up um, in a space where you valued um, other people and, and their, you know, their backgrounds. The food is so diverse, I think, because you, when you look at the culture, I mean, obviously Trinidad has a large uh, East Indian population. Um, so you find that there's a lot of curries. Um, there's a strong Spanish heritage. So you find, you know, there's, you know, dishes that they have. It's, I would, the equivalent would be like almost like a, you know, tamales or something like that. They call, you know, uh, pastel. Um, it has like meats and stuff in it. Or there's one that's called pavy. It's still made with that sort of, you know, cornmeal uh, base. Um, so one sort of uh, sweet ones, you know, uh, on the other side. And there's beaches. I don't think there's a bad beach in Trinidad. I know as a kid, you know, I, I, I deliberately, you know, I was raised a Catholic. So you'd go to church on Saturday evening. So you had your Saturday night free and then you didn't have to wake up that early Sunday morning. You know, after church, you know, you get together with your friends and go, hey, what are you doing? And it's like, hey, you know, let's go. And you camp on the beach, you spend the night, then, you know, you go home in the morning. So I don't think, you know, there's beaches. I think I can probably get to any beach in Trinidad probably in about an hour, two hours, you know, so. Yeah, there were always, you know, um, organized, you know, outings that you take, you know, you go to a beach somewhere. And I think that's how a lot of people spend not only beaches, but there's like some rivers and stuff that you can go to. And you can go hiking, you know, we'd hike over the northern, you know, uh, mountain range to get over to like one of the most popular beaches called Maracas or Las Cuevas. So you'd hike, hike over. It was a normal thing to do. And, um, you know, spend the day at the beach, you know, so... The street food is is another, I mean, obviously there's a strong African influence as well. So you have a lot more like ground provisions, you know, um, kind of stuff. Um, there's one popular dish called oil down. And mm. a lot of ground provisions that you actually sort of steam in coconut milk and some, you know, meat that's really, you know, uh, great. Bacon shark. I bacon shark. Oh my God, shark. yes. Yeah, you got to go, if you go to Maracas, you got to go to Richard's and get some bacon shark. You know, that's a big, uh, a big one. So there's lots of things. Doubles is another, you know, street food. It's like um, the best I could describe it here would be if you had like a, sort of a soft uh, taco shell. But this one's a lot more puffier and it's served with like, um, you know, it's like a chickpea based filling. But it's like uh, to really enjoy it, you've got to have it on the road, right on the side of the road. And, you know, you can get it you know, dressed however you want with different condiments. It's always, you know, hot sauce in there. So you get to decide whether you want it 
slight pepper, you're mild or just, you know, hot. And, you know, so if you're in Trinidad, you got to try, you got to go for some street food and get bacon shark or the doubles. Right. I've heard those names before. And I guess the Indian influence and the African influence is very strong on the food is is what I'm the impression that I'm getting. So but thanks for sharing that. So then at what point did you get back to the U.S. and started your professional life? Well, while I was living in Trinidad, I spent uh, the last three years uh, I was there. I spent some time at the police service, a special reserve police officer. And I got to a point where I, I think I, I developed an appreciation for uh, furthering my education. And so I, that's, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And one way that I decided that I was going to do that, because I was born in, in, in the U.S. and I had U.S. citizenship, I enlisted in the U.S. Army. I was trained as a combat uh, communication specialist. I spent most of my time I went to school, basic, you know, training, uh, went to my advanced individual training for communications and signal, um, army signal school. Um, I decided I want to be a little bit crazy. So I became a paratrooper. I went to, you know, jump school for a little bit. And then I was stationed on Fort Bragg for the next uh, three plus years. And you know, once I was getting, I was trying to decide whether I was going to stay in or get out. And I requested to go temporary duty to Army um, Criminal Investigation Division. So I did that. They allowed me to go. So I spent my last year in the Army working Army CID as an um, undercover drug investigator. Okay. And that led me to a really, really great uh, man, became a really good family friend, but um, he was the Criminal Investigation Division commander the Prince George's County Police Department in Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. And he basically recruited me. And I ended up uh, serving, you know, uh, 10 and a half years with Prince George's County Police Department. That led me again. I finished my bachelor's degree while I was, you know, in the police department. I would go to the nights. Um, I started off, actually, I started going back to school when I was in the Army in Fort Bragg. I went to Fayetteville State while I was there taking night classes just to try to work towards my bachelor's. I continued once I got to Maryland, went to Bowie State University, completed my bachelor's, I guess, total in about seven years. And then 1996, Johns Hopkins University had a program called the Police Executive Leadership Program. I applied, I was accepted, and I ended up with a two-year master's degree in management and leadership. And I stayed on to the department for another couple of years. I think I made, you know, sergeant pretty, you know, quickly. I think in eight years, I was uh, promoted a sergeant. I ran the community policing, um, you know, unit for a while. I ran a patrol squad for a while. But most of my time I spent as a robber detective in the criminal investigation division. And then one day I decided, you know, I wanted to do something different. So I left. I worked for a defense contractor not too far from uh, where I lived that ended up back at the police department. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I mean, community policing was still a big issue and they were now putting, um, you know, computer technology into police cars. And so I ended up working on that project for a while. And, you know, that kind of led me to start my own business. And then in 2010, my wife worked for an international financial institution and I ended up in Hong Kong. And I think that's where my life, um, you know, really kind of changed because while I was there, 
uh, one night, this woman, you know, rang my doorbell. It turns out she was the uh, domestic uh, migrant worker that worked um, across the hall. And she was in tears because she was hungry. And that led me to start sort of researching the laws in Hong Kong about domestic workers. What were their working hours? What their pay was supposed to be, you know, and all these things. And I started to see these glaring gaps in sort of protection that was afforded to these workers. One of the first things I noticed when I got to Hong Kong, it was on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. All these workers, it's their day off and they're allowed to occupy any public space. And so literally they're sitting in every open space, walkways, parks. I mean, it's just thousands and thousands of, of you know people, mostly women, on their day off because they're required to live in with their employer. So to really get a rest day, they have to leave the house. You know, if they stay in, they're going to be forced to work at some point. So I thought that while I was, you know, researching these laws, I came across this organization. It was part of the community outreach uh, program at the cathedral in central Hong Kong. And I thought, yeah, I'll probably volunteer, you know, one or two days a week. I, you know, I was familiar with the legal um, system. It's not, you know, that different from Trinidad, both being, you know, British, former British colonies. Um <laughs> So the legal system is, you know, pretty similar. And so I thought, yeah, I'd volunteer a couple of days during the week. And I got hooked. Um, I ended up going every day for almost, you know, three years. And, uh, you know, when I left, you know, that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to do my PhD and I'm going to do it at law. Because I thought if there's some way that I can contribute to making a little bit of difference in the experience that these folks are having, then, you know, I, I was obligated to do it. So... Yeah, that led me down this whole path about, you know, um, a lot of human rights training, a lot of human rights. I mean, I went all over. Every topic that I could think of related to human rights, you know, I went at least, you know, for, for years. I ended up going back to Hong Kong and doing my uh, my field work for my uh, PhD. And I actually looked at how, you know, governments, what the obligations of government in protecting, in, in this instance, migrant workers, but literally any vulnerable group. When I look back, I mean, other than the police department, I think, you know, doing a human trafficking work in Hong Kong is the second most rewarding thing that I've done. I mean, every day that I left the office, I knew what I did for that day. And that's kind of compelling that you can at least one person at a time, you can have at least some small impact about their experience and, and, you know, sometimes their future, you know. I think the biggest thing you know to take away is that I got to see because um, I had the opportunity, I had clients, you know, well, or previous clients that you help. I uh, had a chance one day to go to Indonesia and visit one of the old uh, clients, and you get there, and it just brings the point home that you know Hong Kong is a their legal system and the civil system is really tilted towards alternative dispute resolution, negotiation, you know? And a lot of times I think it's a really unfair process. And you get to see that every dollar that is left on the table for a migrant worker is a window that doesn't get put in into their home or, you know, something that that they have to go without because most of them are traveling because they want to improve their condition in their home country. You know, you look at this this woman, you know, a year two years later, and she says, I feel cheated. It gives you sort of a a different um, motivation to be a better advocate 
when they come to you for help because you know that it the, the money that they can can that they have already worked for that it has a real impact on them back home and their family so and so how long were you in hong kong uh how were you there doing that so i got to hong kong in january of 2010 and left hong kong in september october of 2012 well i left in 12 but you know i continued to go back through 2013 a little bit in 2014 but i was back in school at the time and in 2015 i went back i did my field work there so i spent almost the entire year yeah and then in 2018 i went back on a contract so i was there 2018 through 2019 so i spent a good bit of time you know um, in hong kong but right, I was right. going back and forth at the time because it, in once I got back from Hong Kong, um, I ended up in London. So um, wow. I was going back and forth from London to Hong Kong. Yeah. So right. Yeah. But, okay. And where did you get your PhD? Did I? I'm sorry if I missed it. Oh no. Uh, well, I didn't answer that question. <laughs> yeah. So after I left Hong Kong, I was back in the U.S. for a couple of months. I was already committed to doing my PhD. And I ended up finding a program. It was the University of York in the UK. And they had a program. It's through their Center for Applied Human Rights. And I told them what I was thinking of doing. You know, I was going to focus on migrant workers in Hong Kong. I was going to try to look at, you know, the government, you know, obligations and providing, um, you know, a remedy to, you know, human rights violations, uh, violations that I saw as human rights violations. And they said, yeah, you know, so end of 2013, 2014. And basically, I, one thing I loved about it was they said that, hey, it's this is a three-year program. We'll give you four probably. And so the pressure was on that you needed to get it done. So I submitted my thesis in 2017. And I did my um, oral exam in 2018. And, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah. But yeah, that was a good, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's kind of interesting because after I got back to, to Hong Kong, I mean, even having at that time worked with, you know, migrant workers for, you know, since, you know, I'd say 2011, the experience was just still informative, I guess, because there are things that you think you you know, and then you really, really get into a lot of different interviews and, and you kind of realize, wow, you know. There's just some little nuances that you 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 pick up, and it it really kind of shapes you know the way you think. And interestingly, it's not just you know for about migrant workers. I think when you sort of apply the underlying principles more broadly, I mean, you can see how either government policy or lack of policy really impacts uh, vulnerable populations. So you can apply it to any you know group that uh, that you consider at risk or disadvantage. Right, yeah. It's amazing. One knock at the door led you down to a whole life's work. Yeah. And so, okay, so your story brings us to the topic of human trafficking, right? And uh, what you're currently doing in the in the space. Do you mind sharing a bit of uh, as to how after getting your PhD, that kind of morphed into now this work that you do today? 
it's still sort of a little disjointed. I gotta admit, I didn't get back home until uh, 2019. At that time, I've been out of the country now for uh, 10 plus years. And obviously, you spend a little bit of time. I have two kids, you know, they're, you know, adults in their 30s, you know, but you hadn't seen them, you know, frequently and, and for a long time. And you try to, you know, sort of kind of get reacclimatized. And then, you know, obviously, COVID hits and everybody's locked in. You know? Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, I, I didn't get back to late uh, 2019. So early 2020, you know, you COVID, you know, so everybody's locked in for two years. But one of the things I did when I left Hong Kong is I started a, a, a nonprofit here in the U.S. called Eris Human Rights International. And my idea behind it at the time was that I wanted to use it to stay in the in the migrant uh, migration, you know, human trafficking space, you know, trying to see I could talk to, you know, potential clients, you know, online or Facebook or, you know, Skype or whatever it was. I could help them, you know, draft an affidavit or a statement or something like that. I could provide advice. I could do a live, you know, broadcast with, you know, somebody. And there's a woman that I met while I was there, a migrant worker. I, I think just pretty, I, the word I would use for is just really resilient. Um, but um, she created a, a Facebook page and there's, I don't know, right now there's probably 200 plus thousand people on that site. And so it was a good place that you can actually kind of, you know, raise the awareness of, of rights within that space. I still continue to do that. And, you know, it's, you find that it doesn't even just state of Hong Kong. I had a call, a woman that I had met while I was at University of York. She's a human rights defender in Kenya. And while I was in London, I got this call when a, a note one that says, hey, you know, do you know anybody in Saudi Arabia? <laughs> I go in, well, no, but I probably can find somebody. So I reached out to you know, somebody in Hong Kong. Hey, do you know anybody in Saudi Arabia? Yep. And it turns out there was a, a woman, a Kenyan, that was working in, in, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, um, who had run away from an employer because she was being abused. She didn't have her papers. And in, in Saudi or the uh, UAE, you need your papers. It's called Yakima. And without those, you can't really travel. If you get caught without it as a foreign worker, you could be in some trouble. And sometimes the police actually take you back to the employer. So she was in need of medical assistance. She was hiding. And we set up a Facebook uh, chat group. And the woman in Hong Kong knew of another woman, a, co a Filipino countryman in near Jeddah and so it took us a month but eventually you know we got her back to uh, Kenya and so for me it was just kind of a you know more that you know there's just so much opportunity that you don't have to be you know actually on the ground somewhere but you know if you have these links and these connections these networks you can make a lot of things happen yes okay so if you don't mind can you educate us and our myself and, and our audience about this issue of human trafficking I'm listening to your story and it sounds, you know, you hear about slave stories about being returned to their the plantation after they've ran away and all this thing. And it was just like, it's modern day times and this is still happening, but just a different, what we call modern day slavery. Can you speak to that a bit about the issue itself and, and, and where we are currently with trying to combat this human international human trafficking? Where do I start? Okay, so let's start with the term, the terminology first. We, we refer to it as, as modern day slavery. And so if we go back and we think about the original type of slavery, where it was chattel slavery or actually owned 
by another person. You, um, they exercise complete domination over your life. They got to decide what, when you woke up, when you ate, when you went to sleep, who you married, if you did or not. You had no opportunity to say no to any demand that was made. Uh, contrast that today where, you know, pretty much, you know, globally that sort of, you know, slavery has been abolished. But some of the conditions that keep you trapped in sort of those same slave-like conditions still exist. And it doesn't matter where you go, um, at least my experiences, when I wanted to find out more about, you know, human trafficking and, and when I was in Hong Kong, I went to um, San Francisco for two weeks to some training. And, you know, when I left Hong Kong, I was really incensed because it was like, oh, my God, what is happening here? You know, you would see, you know, somebody that um, comes to work as a migrant worker. They're experiencing debt bondage because to travel, they have to find money to do that. You have recruiters in their local villages that recruit them. Don't tell them, you know, exactly who they're going to work for, where they're going to work at, at times. They have written contracts that nobody, well, I don't want to say nobody. The people that you see, um, the employers really um, adhere to. So there's a lot of violations that go on, even rest days. It's not uncommon to find a worker that is going to put in a minimum of 17 hours a day. There's no law that stipulates the number of working hours in a day for a, a domestic worker. And so you find all these gaps and, and, and where it's abused to the detriment of the worker. And so I was really kind of like, oh, my God, you know, how could this be happening? So I wanted to find out more. And I went to um, San Francisco to this organization called Not For Sale. And then I left there in sense because, oh, my God, I could swap the name Hong Kong for the United States. And it's the same thing happening here. And over the years, it doesn't matter if you're in Kenya, Hong Kong, Australia. The United States, the underlying stories are all the same. Workers are lured by, you know, recruiters or networks of people for jobs that either sometimes don't exist, for jobs that um, are not what they agree to, or sometimes they don't, they're not even told, you know, what the job is going to be. And so you show up in a country at some destination and it's not what you agreed to or what you thought it was. But once you get there, you're indebted. So you can't say no. Mm -hmm. All right. It's exacerbated sometimes by government policy because in a lot of times, you know, if you're a domestic worker, an agricultural worker, you're tied to a single employer. So once you start having these multiple dependencies, you're actually making the person more vulnerable and more susceptible to abuse and a less likelihood that they can leave if things go bad. Couple that with the main reason why they traveled or they, they decided to become a, a migrant worker to begin with, or, you know, a foreign worker, is because they want to take care of their families back in their home country. It's linked to, a lot of times, to poverty. You know, everybody, you know, wants to improve the condition, their, you know, condition and that of their family. So you have all these things working at the same time. And, you know, a worker gets to a destination country and they're sort of trapped. And sometimes, you know, you say, hey, I don't want to stay here and they're allowed to leave. But a lot of times, you know, you're going, well, no, you can't because 
you get to your destination and you're either have your passport seized by an employer. Once you lose your identity documents, who are you? Where do you go to complain? How do you prove who you are? You know, if you decide I want to go to a consulate, you know, if you don't have any papers or a passport and you get to a consulate, what do you tell them? You know, my name is, you know, X and, you know, I'm a, a citizen of X country, but you have no documents to prove it. How do you travel? And so it's this condition that that continues to happen. And I think one of the, the things is that for me at this point, I feel that we're one, not being successful enough at combating it, uh, preventing it. Uh, I think in 2010, 2011, when I started looking at trafficking, it was human trafficking was the third most profitable um, organized or transnational organized crime behind arms trafficking and drug trafficking. And at the time, there was something like 21 million people in more forms of modern day slavery globally. Today, human trafficking is second behind arms wow. trafficking. And there's almost 25 million people, you know, in forms of modern day slavery globally. So we're not being really successful. You know, my assessment at this point is, you know, the jury might still be out a little bit, but I'm leaning towards thinking that we're addressing the symptom rather than the root cause. What is the real underlying cause of trafficking? You know, we have a large uh, group of people moving either because of climate change, poverty, poor governance. And once you have this large group of people on the move, you have people that are out there taking advantage of, of their condition. Why are people moving to begin with? And so we can spend a lot of time addressing the symptoms of trafficking. We can, you know, arrest, you know, if it's sex trafficking, we could arrest Johns and, you know, that, those sorts of things. If it's labor trafficking, you know, we can try to put things in place. But how do we really address the, you know, this underlying cause that puts people at risk? And I think it's, you know, improvement of economic conditions. What makes uh, people so vulnerable? We talk about it's, you know, you look and see who's usually at, at risk in a country. Usually, recently, my migrated uh, folks are, you know, always at the top of the list. They're unfamiliar with the language, unfamiliar with the laws. You know, everybody, I, I, I say there, there's a struggle for assets, human assets that we think of. We can think about your health and, you know, education and those sort of things, things that make you a little bit more resilient that allows you then to pursue physical assets, you know, things of material value that also improves your resilience. And then we have social assets like networks that we have, you know, family, friends, churches, political parties, those things, right? And this is, you know, uh, for me, this is what the fight is over. Because if I'm poor, I lack, you know, sort of uh, education and those sorts of things. And it's not necessarily always the case, you know. I mean, I've, I've run into people that are, you know, bachelors in accounting and nursing. And, you know, I had one woman, she, she was a ceramics engineer, you know. But because of underemployment in her country, she was forced to, to migrate. So there's this struggle, I think, that's going on to, you know, acquire these assets. But most of the time, if you find that somebody, I'm poor, I didn't have a really uh, great, you know, education. I don't have the financial wherewithal. I can't, you know, withstand any shocks to my system. I'm vulnerable to begin with. I end up, 
you know, somewhere else. The only thing left for a trafficker to do is to remove the last available asset to you, and that is to isolate you from family, friends, any sort of services that can help you um, navigate a system that you're not familiar with. And so if I can remove that last leg of that three-leg stool, now I pretty much own you because you're, you're, uh, it was in Orlando at the end of December uh, attending a, a trafficking uh, a trial. And the witness, you know, um, adult um, victim, I mean, she literally summed it up. She was homeless. She didn't have really any money. She was a, a drug user um, and she was um, willingly engaging in prostitution. And once this guy picked her up, I mean, kept her, you know, um, I got to say one thing. The guy was acquitted. But her story was that for about eight weeks, he kept her on um, a truck. But when they asked her, well, why? You know, she says, where was I going to go? What are my options? You know, because once they take control of you and you have no network that you can rely on to help you get out, you're really trapped. You know, and so I, I, I said all that to, to, you know, kind of raise the question, are we really addressing the underlying cause that puts people at risk and make them uh, victims of trafficking? And I, I think we may need to be just looking a little bit beyond making arrests and those sort of things. You know, one of the things that Congress, uh, you know, enacted when they implemented the trafficking the persons, um, you know, the TVPA, Trafficking Victims Protection Act was to increase the sort of economic, you know, viability for people at risk. I think there's a recognition that we need re- need to do something outside of, you know, enforcement that makes and allows these groups of, of people that we consider at risk to be a little bit more resilient. And so part of our initial conversation, we spoke about the trafficking situation here in the U.S., right? It's an, it's a huge international problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Interpol and other folks are involved in trying to figure out what to do and other law enforcement entities. But can you speak to what is the current situation in the U.S.? What are the states or cities that have the largest? I think we spoke of uh, Georgia being one of those um Red states and, um, well, not politically red state, but, you know, red yeah, meaning, yeah. like, you know, on the map of huge issue. Yeah. So, I mean, off the top of my head, I don't think I can name it, but I know Georgia is the, globally, is the second in terms of child um, sex uh, trafficking. Top um, states, Florida is a really big one as a city. Orlando is a big one. Um, Ohio is a big one. I think the city's on the on the West Coast. And I think I think there's really a lack of understanding or awareness about uh, trafficking. So the TVPA, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, is the domestic implementation of an international convention. So there's the International Convention on Transnational Organized Crime. As part of that convention, there's an additional, they call a protocol, which is like an addendum to that convention. It's commonly called the Palermo Protocol only because it was um, enacted in in Palermo, Italy. But it's the convention to suppress trafficking in persons, particularly women and children. And so because the United States is a party to that, the TVPA is the domestic implementation of that obligation. The thing is that 
the protocol, it states that at a minimum, it will cover sex trafficking and labor trafficking, or trafficking for forced labor. And literally, I think that's what the TVPA did, just the bare minimum standard, because when we look at the TVPA, it basically covers sex and and labor. And I think that's one of the, the big misunderstandings, because I try to tell every chance I get that we have to think of trafficking as an umbrella. It happens in three sort of dimensions. You know, the act, what do you do? So it's a recruitment, you know, transportation, you know, that sort of stuff. The means, how did you do it? Force, fear, threat of force, abuse of power, abuse of position of vulnerability. And then for what purpose is the last stage? And the purpose is the, the form of exploitation. So it's always your traffic for some form of exploitation. You can traffic for sexual exploitation. You can be trafficked for forced labor. In a lot of countries, you may have uh, kids that are being trafficked for child brides. So you could be trafficked for that. In some uh, countries, you're um, organ harvesting. So you can be trafficked for. And I think when we think about, you know, the legal framework that we put in place to address the human trafficking issue, we've really been too narrowly focused. There's a case that is commonly, you know, I think I would say one of the landmark cases that talks about trafficking and the issue of coercion in trafficking situations, and it's United States v. Uh, Kaminsky. Uh, one of the main arguments in that case was that um, the Kaminskys were uh, convicted of involuntary uh, servitude, but at the time, the law simply indicated that it was it could only be for threats or legal process. So if you were threatened that you were going to be for some legal action to get you to perform, that was against the law, or if you were physically restrained, right? And because it was so narrow, the Kaminskys argued that because it wasn't a legal process or they weren't actually physically harmed, that they shouldn't have been um, found guilty. There were other reasons why they were, but one of the, the main things that came out from the Supreme Court, you know, looking at that case, was that coercion can involve nonviolent forms. And so Congress was then required to go back and change the law, and they changed it to include serious harm. And, you know, so those are the sort of things that came out of it. And so if we, we're thinking that we want to have, you know, sort of broad le uh, legislation to cover victims of trafficking, we have to sort of predict what um, communities, individuals, or groups are at risk, what are they at risk for, and ensure that the legislation or the legal frameworks that we're putting in place are broad enough to cover them. And all it may take right now is just to add some language that instead of saying that, you know, it's a transportation harboring, you know, whatever it is, um, to include, you know, sex and labor, it could just mean and other forms of exploitation. You know, and so why not, you know, make it broad enough that, you know, you can cover as many forms of trafficking as you can. I did some training a couple of years ago and it was uh, for the National Sheriff's Association. It was their winter conference. And I remember talking to a sheriff from North Carolina and I asked him about labor trafficking and he goes, no, that doesn't happen here. You know, that's the West Coast. We have this misunderstanding about what, you know, trafficking, let's say, for forced laborers. 
when I was a rubber detective in Prince George's County, um, the call initially went out as a check on the welfare. Guy owned a, a Chinese restaurant. He got a call from persons unknown, said they had his mother. They wanted X number of dollars. And so once the officers got there, sure enough, the mother was tied up in the kitchen. I got called as the detective, the rubber detective, because now it's escalated to a home invasion. And I remember going into the basement and there were seven bunk beds in the basement. Mm-hmm. So they were housing at least 14 people there. And so these things are happening right in the smack of your neighborhood and you're unaware of it. And they, one of the main things, again, you're isolating these, these victims. They can't, they're working long hours. They can't go anywhere else. They can't work anywhere else, you know. I mean, who's checking to see who's living in the house or, you know, what? And then this happened a few weeks later. It happened to another person who owned another restaurant. And then other, you know, officers or other detectives got involved. And it turned out with the help of the FBI, we were able to determine that these folks were being, you know, brought in from uh, China on the West Coast and then being sort of shipped along the East Coast. So it turned out that, you know, there was this movement of people and working in the restaurant space that we're unaware of and this is how you know law enforcement you're really going to find a victim that comes to you and says hey i've been trafficked mm-hmm. you know you're going to hear all sorts of different languages right mm-hmm. and we have to be really kind of you know attuned to trafficking for labor doesn't only mean working in a agricultural context we look at a lot of hotels now are outsourcing their cleaning services. Mm-hmm. Where are those workers coming from? You know, um, there's a place that I stay at, you know, um, every time I'm in New York, or a lot of times when I'm in New York, and you see over the years how the work staff, the staff has changed, you know, the cleaning staff. You know, at one point you thought, oh, these, you know, folks, you know, you talk to them and, and based on, you know, listening to their language and stuff like that, you can tell that they're probably local. And then at one point it was Eastern Europeans, you know, and you have to ask yourself, how are they coming? And so usually there's a network that's, you know, you got to get a visa to come and work most of the time. Yes. If you're here illegally, I mean, who's checking? You know? right. so I think there's just a really a sort of misunderstanding about how trafficking happens, where it's happening. And, you know, there's got to be an acknowledgement that it's happening right in our communities. It's happening in businesses. And so I think there's an opportunity for every every business that comes into existence does so with the authority of the state. Every state has a part of the, the state apparatus that is responsible for licensing businesses. Right. The Secretary of State. Secretary of State, yes. Right. And so if we know that there are certain industries, agriculture, the hospitality business, you know, retail services, and we know that these are certain uh, businesses that are prone to trafficking in persons, then I think there's an opportunity for the state to then put some teeth into you know, legislation that says, if I'm starting X business, then one, I have to be aware that um, trafficking in persons is a problem with this. I'm going to ensure that trafficking doesn't happen. If there's trafficking that does and we find that you know it was happening and you're responsible you you're going to be penalized you're going to have to provide compensation to the victims you're going to have you know 
So you can put some real teeth into that. You know, it's like what happened after Enron, you know. Now every CEO has to certify that their business is being run, you know, properly and, you know, they're doing things right. But you don't do that with a lot of, uh, you know, other businesses. So I think there's an opportunity for more state, you know, regulation of a lot of businesses that are prone to these types of uh, violations. So we need to be doing, a, there's a whole lot of different moving parts. You know, education is also a big one. You know, I think a lot of times when you think about who's at risk of trafficking, you always think that it's some foreign worker that is here illegally, and it's not necessarily the case. So we need to also start thinking, you know, communication. How do we talk about trafficking and particularly sex trafficking? And the last thing, I feel like I'm talking a lot. But the last thing is, you know, there's a big push now when we're, we talk a lot about, you know, victim-centered trauma-informed services, you know. It's a big word, <laughs> a lot of words. Yes. Um, but what does that really mean? You know, obviously, we uh, we don't want to create or we don't want to re-traumatize victims. I mean, I had that a lot. You know, I, I interviewed a lot of people for my research. I interviewed a lot of people just working, you know, in the space. And you always try to, you know, be empathetic and, uh, you know, go slowly and try to, you know, empower people to sort of tell you their stories. I don't think there's a way that you cannot re-traumatize a victim of trafficking. And I say the word victim, I, I know that a lot of people go, oh, no, it's survivors. I use the word victims because when I think about trafficking, I think about the criminal justice system and the criminal justice system is set up to vindicate the rights of victims. Right. That's the only reason why I use victims instead of survivors, right? Yes. We really got to look at, you know, how we're doing it. Again, the criminal justice system is set up that it's confrontational. A a, a victim has to come forward and tell you exactly what happened to them in detail to be, you know, effectively prosecuted. And so if we're going to need that sort of detail, you know, sometimes it's a slow process, you know, but how much say does a victim really have because it's required international level as well as domestic level we one of the obligations is we prosecute you know the perpetrators of this this offense so to really have an effective prosecution the victim has to be involved they have to tell their story and that story will always cause a sort of re-traumatization so we've got to make sure that we have things in place to make sure that their you know mental health needs are being met and not only that, but to to have them to be an effective participant and an effective witness, we've got to make sure that there's a host of other needs are met before we can really, you know, present any evidence. You know, if they're not housed properly, we've got to make sure that they're not, you know, homeless or in the streets. We've got to make sure that they have mental access to, um, you know, medical care, the, the counseling, you know, all a host of things. And all these things have to be set up beforehand before we can say that we're taking you know, care of a victim. I, I mean, I learned that firsthand. Yes. Um, yeah. I, when I was in Hong Kong, I mean, I've talked about it so much that a friend called me one Saturday morning and said, hey, man, I was at this bar last night and I was solicited by this woman. She looked like she was scared, you know, and I ended up talking to her and she said that, you know, she was doing this against her will. And I told her I knew somebody that might be able to help. So she gave me her number. So he gave me the woman's number. And... At the time, I thought, well, it's Saturday. Every shelter that I know of is closed on Saturday. Where was, wow. if I even called and was able to go and get this person, where was I going to take him? So at the time, um, you know, the Catholic um, Center in Hong Kong, 
they had a shelter. I ended up calling and there's a, a nun that I had worked with, you know, um, and I told her what the situation was. And she says, if you can get her here before five o'clock, we'll take her. All right. And so I called back and I was like, hey, you know, I can you know, come, you know, get you. But yeah, do you know where you are? She didn't know. Oh, my goodness. All right. And I was like, wow. well, you know, I'm going to call you back. See if you can figure out, you know, some, you know, some address and, and let me know. And then I didn't hear her and I called and I called and I called. And that's the last time I spoke to that woman. Wow. So, you know, it's one of those things. You you have to have these things already in place because if somebody calls and says, hey, you know, I'm in trouble, come get me, you know, you don't have a whole lot of time, you know, and you've got to know where you're going. So there's a host of things that, you know, you've got to make sure that everything is, is there in place and everybody's sort of driving in the same direction in terms of pre- prevention and protection and you know, investigations and prosecution, you know, it's all got to be geared towards one thing, and it's the victim. Making right. sure that we have the proper legislation in place to, we're, we're never going to stop it totally, but to mitigate its occurrence. If it happens, we got to have the proper tools where we can really support the victim. We can, you know, effectively prosecute with as much minimizing the harm that we cause. And if there's gaps that cause it to happen, we've got to correct them. You know, so there's this cycle, I think, that, that is always going. We have to predict what's going to happen. Legislation is in place. It didn't work like we thought it was. We've got to prosecute all this at the same time. But we've also got to look at why didn't it work? And then we've got to either tweak the legislation, add new legislation that is informed by the knowledge that we gain. And so there's always has to be this sort of assessment that goes on. But... You know, there's lots of gaps in there because, you know, labor inspectors are always in short supply. People that you go to for help aren't always knowledgeable about what you need. So there's tons of reasons why, you know, the kind of services that would mitigate the occurrence, you know, um, don't work effectively. As you're talking, um, you know, several words keep popping in my, I'm thinking unaccompanied minors mm-hmm. at the southwest border and how they're vulnerable and we're releasing them to sponsors right sponsors mm-hmm. and of course you know the government does its best to vet the folks that are receiving these children but you know traffic they're being encouraged to show up at the border and other people are receiving them and it's so concerning as to what situations these children are going to be finding themselves in. I saw a billboard in the last few days because January is celebrated as National Trafficking Awareness Month and the 11th is actually National Trafficking Awareness Day. And there was a billboard that said boys are trafficked as well. Like there is increasing numbers of young boys who are being trafficked. I'm I'm wondering like, so, so it's mostly women, but boys are increasingly being trafficked as well. I'm trying to think of the, of, the, of the term I want to use, but there's a reason why. I mean, even like I said, the preliminary protocol is to suppress the trafficking of women and children. Globally, uh, you know, that's who's trafficked the most, you know, women and children. Yep, men are trafficked, boys are trafficked as well. But I think when you look at the numbers, it's overwhelmingly women and children and particularly girls. And so, you know, you don't want to minimize that. You know, everybody, I mean, I've seen both sides. It depends where you are. If you're in Dubai and you look at all the construction that's going on, you know, it's a lot of men. And from Pakistan, there's a lot of articles that were out there. You know, the last World Cup, they projected that, you know, 
4,000 migrant workers were going to die, you know, getting these, um, you know, event places together. And it turns out, I guess the final number was 6,500, right? And there obviously people are going to say, well, you know, they didn't all die because of, you know, um, you know, forced labor, or, you know, trafficking, you know, things like that. But the thing is, you have to have really good details about how did, you know, so many people die getting a, a venue going. Um, and when you hear the stories about, you know, most of them were uh, from Nepal. And when you hear the stories about how they recruited, it's the same. You know, the countries are going to change, the project may change, but the underlying, you know, modus operandi is the same. You're lured by some false promise of a better working and living conditions that you can provide for your family with nice wages, you know. And I've been in rooms like that. A woman came one day and she says, hey, you know, I paid $34,000 Hong Kong dollars to this recruitment agency because they said they can get us jobs in Cyprus. But I decided I didn't want to do it. But they don't want to give me back my money. Would you go with me? I said, sure. So I go to the office and, you know, there's like 20 other women in there and they're all excited because they're promised jobs in Cyprus. And they were mad at this one woman because she decided not to go along. And I'm like, hey, you know, there's no jobs in Cyprus waiting for you. I mean, this is how it happens. And could you imagine even if they got on a flight to Cyprus and once they got there, it's not what they think. Where are they going to go? Who are they going to ask for help? You're really now vulnerable. Or Cyprus, right? right. They're telling them Cyprus. Like, yeah. where are they actually really going? Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, I mean, just in the space, it's like most of these stories are horror stories. And some of them actually work out, you know. I remember one woman saying to me, hey, um, could you tell me how to get the uh, visa to, to Brazil? And I went, what do you know in Brazil? Well, there's this guy that I met online, and I was, oh, my God, no, you can't. I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, she was younger. She was probably younger than my kids. And so my fatherly instinct kicked in, and I was trying to really talk her out of it. And she's like, no, I met him through church, you know. And I was like, oh, no, you know. Once you get there, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, do you even speak Portuguese? Uh, you're going to depend on this person for everything. You know, you don't know. This is how these stories happen. And sure enough, it's probably now seven years or something like that. She's married happily. She's got kids, you know, and still we're friends on Facebook and she's good. But it doesn't work out like that way for everybody. Most of the cases you hear of, you know, this is how it starts. I meet somebody online or I have a boyfriend that says, hey, you know, go to with these folks. I'm going to come get you. And three years later, they're being rescued from uh, some trafficking situation. It's stories are all the same, you know, right. and most of the time it's somebody that, you know, I, I was just watching a little video from um, Jamaica where a young lady was, you know, luckily she was able to get away. She got into a taxi. First person in the taxi, the taxi driver picked up several people, dropped off everybody else. She was the last person left and she's realizing he's not going in the direction that I asked him to go. She started asking him and he's like, no, we're not going there. He gets on the phone and he's talking to somebody and they're negotiating price of how much he's going to sell her oh. for. And this is like happening right now in Jamaica. Taxi yeah. drivers. Yeah. Okay. It's so yeah. alarming to me, like, and people go, young girls go missing on the island all the time and people don't, they never find them. Well, that's the thing. And you got to ask yourself, are they actually staying in the country? Within the Caribbean, you can kidnap 
somebody, get them on a boat, the next thing they end up in some other island, you know. I mean, a lot of times those, that trafficking is interregional. So somebody goes missing in, in Jamaica, Trinidad, or wherever it is, one, are they still local? Two, are law enforcement working together to share that information, right? Because you need that that cooperation and coordination, and you have to work it together as a regional issue. If you just sort of look at it as, you know, Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, or whatever it is, even in the Caribbean, any country, if you look at it sort of isolated, you're going to miss a whole lot of things. So how do you identify people if you show up, you know, um, you know, lost somewhere? How do you know where that person's from? I mean, I think they almost need a system like you do for, you know, um, for kids when they go missing. You know, there's a big drive many, many years ago where you had your kids uh, fingerprinted and, you know, um, things like that in case they go missing. Unfortunately, it didn't help you find them a, a lot faster. In some cases you did, but um, you've got to know because there's patterns. A group of people, you know, they're they're taking you from one place and transporting you to someplace else. You know, there's, there's patterns that you can probably identify, but you've got to be working across borders to really, you know, do that. Yeah. Right, yes. Collaboration with law enforcement all across yeah. the globe. Yeah. to to combat this thing. Wow, I'm I'm quite concerned. And so I'm so happy that we were able to t- discuss this in depth today. It's interesting, right? Because you were raised in Trinidad, but you were born um, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You still do have a Trinidad accent. You really do after <laughs> all these years, right? So I wonder, do you identify as Trini or American Trini or Trinidadian American? And what was that experience like over the years, like navigating you know, your identity and living in, a, you know, in this country? You know, it's funny. I don't think I spend a lot of, obviously, um, it's where I got that question asked a lot, you know, where, where is home? So if you think about it, um, I spent my first 23 years in Trinidad. I've been gone from there now for over 30, but 10 of those years, I didn't, wasn't even in the U.S., you know mm-hmm. okay right that's true you were traveling overseas and working overseas right and so when people go um, where's home you know you I, I i find it difficult to answer i mean obviously i'm always familiar with trinidad my brothers and sisters are there like i said you know when you it's not like when you get there you know exactly where you're going what to do right but i can say that now for a lot of different places if I go back to London now, I, I know where I am. I could get onto a subway. I could get onto a bus. I know where I'm going. Same thing if I get to Hong Kong. You know, I get from the airport. I know exactly where I'm going. You know, I can speak a little bit to get me in trouble, but, you know, they can't overcharge me for taking a taxi cab. Right? <laughs> so, you know, at heart, you know, I feel like, you know, I still really kind of identify as as a treaty. I, I don't think you can sort of escape that. You know, that's your early years and it kind of, you know, like I said, it's shaped really kind of shaped who you are. But the biggest thing I think, you know, it's I think it's because of how I was raised, the experiences that I had there that I've been able to navigate other places. And I think you look at the history, you know, and particularly of race in the United States, and you have a whole different perspective, you know. When I was in the Army, I went to Fort McClellan, Alabama to a training for a week and uh, we were at this bar one night and um, we were having a good time, but I looked over and a lot of the African-American guys were sitting over in a corner 
And I went over and I said, hey, what's wrong with you guys? What happened? And they said, dude, you don't know where you are. And I go, what do you mean? He says, man, you in Alabama. And I deep went, south. <laughs> right. And I was like, it didn't mean anything to me. Right. Probably, you know, uh, it was a stupid thing, but it didn't mean anything to me. And in hindsight now, you know, obviously being involved in a human trafficking space and really looking at, you know, the impact of, you know, culture and government and institutions, you know, and how it impacts race, you realize that, you know, even though these guys may not have been directly impacted, I guess in some ways you're always directly impacted, but they would have been raised in a way that told them, this is what it was like. This is how you should behave. This is what is expected of you. And I think that's what it meant by, dude, you don't know where you are. So for them, they were new that there was a certain behavior that they were limited to. Yes. I, on the other hand, growing up in Trinidad, nobody ever had to tell me, you know, when I looked at the political leaders in that country, nobody had to tell me that, you know, a black guy could be prime minister or, you know, because that's all you saw. That's all you knew. And again, growing up in Trinidad, I had friends that were Hindu and Muslim and, you know, of all different uh, stripes. And so you grow up with this sort of, you know, really kind of open uh, mindset about other other people, cultures, you know, those sorts of things. And I think for me, that's what, you know, has made me able to, I guess, in a way, be successful. because. If you look for it every day, you're going to find it. But you don't let that hamper you from doing the things that you want to do. And everything, it's not, uh, you know, there's not always a racial tension to everything, you know. Um, look at me. I'm a, you know, six foot, uh, six foot two, 230 pound black guy in, in, you know, Hong Kong. I mean, I left there with lots of friends. And a lot of times, you know, people just don't know. They're curious. So you just can't take everything as, you know, it, it's there's some kind of nefarious racial, you know, motive behind it. I spent, when I was there, I spent a lot of times in the Philippines and Indonesia. You travel to Vietnam. I don't think there's any place that I'd ever gone to where I went, oh, I feel uncomfortable. I think it's just my mindset, right? That you get to sort of dictate the pace about how people respond to you. And obviously, I'm not saying that you haven't had, I haven't had, you know, bad experiences, but I think I've enjoyed the time that I've been able to travel the places I've been, that I've been to. I did a lot. Like I said, when I started to do my human trafficking work, my human rights work, I mean, to been to Brussels and Vienna and Italy and all these places that you go, wow. So... I think, you know, growing up in Trinidad really kind of gave me a foundation that allowed me to be um, who I am, as free as I am. And I approach it as, you know, I'm going to be really, you know, nice, cordial, respectful to everybody until they're not. Right, right. I, I completely agree with you. That was yeah. indeed my my i was quite naive about certain things that i was supposed to know about in quotes that i just they were they were in conversation we had growing up and it wasn't an issue until i had to learn 
And now I feel that it's in my psyche and it, uh, you know, it's in my thoughts. And so then it affects your energy and, you know, energy you're putting out to the world and, and what you're attracting. And so yeah. it's, it's very important to be aware of, you know, what you're dwelling on and, you know, and so forth. So I, I get your point. I, I completely get that. But, but you feel it, you feel it a lot differently depending where you are. <laughs> Yes, I, I yes, I, I agree with you. I agree. I, I understand that folks who've been here in this country, it, it they were harsh circumstances that they were born and raised in, and over the decades, just haven't they haven't had a reprieve to experience anything else. So you know that's their exposure. That's what they know, and so they've learned to um, uh, protect themselves and to operate and behave a certain way because that's the environment they they were in. So I, I and I also empathize with that too. Yeah. So well, um, I mean, interestingly enough, working with migrant workers and doing my field work, it really forced me to look at other things. You see these connections that you didn't even realize that were there. You know. So I was talking to this woman one day, and we were talking just simply about her day off, right? And she's like, "Yeah, I get to decide," you know when I come back and as the conversation went on, you know, I said, well, you know, what would you do if you're, what would your employer do if you came back late? You know, she thought about it for a really, really long time. And I could see the, I could see the gears turning and then like her, you know, face, her expression really changed. And she said these words at that point, it really clicked for me. Mm. And she said to me, I guess I'm not as free as I thought. Mm. It, it had a lot of implications because the discussion started off with her basically having the autonomy to make these decisions on her own. And it ended with this realization that she realizes that she didn't, but she thought she did. Yeah. So there's some psychological process that goes on where you feel you have a lot more agency than you did. And so I started to think, well, how was this showing on? I mean, I, I this was about at the time about the, 30, I had an interview 30 something other people. And so I went back to my first interview and I started to go over it again. And when I started to read through this common thread started coming, it reminded me of uh, being a police officer going to domestic violence calls. And this trade-off that people make for a peace of mind to get along, you know, um, and so I started to kind of take this a little bit further. If you start looking at this sort of imbalance of power in the relationship and this sort of silent struggle for control, once you, you apply that to the greater society, you start looking at things a whole lot differently, you know? And so for me, just doing that exercise, you know, because if you think about it and you apply it, let's just say to the African-American community in the United States, you know, you spend... Uh, 200 plus years uh, being denied certain, you know, rights. And even though you said, though you were told that there's this equality in treatment and you're denied it at every step in the legislative process, in the corporate space, you know, in the educational space, you were subjected to all forms of violence and, and, and these folks did it with impunity. Yes. People growing up on the other side, even, you know, it was a, it, it was the same thing. It, it takes me back to my guys in Alabama, you know, in Alabama, right? Not only were you expected to behave in a certain way, you were expected to accept a certain form of treatment. And the people that were growing up on the other side, they could look and tell, well, who in my community has power? 
who within the community, you know, is respected and who's not. Mm-hmm. And now we talk about implicit bias, but at one point it was explicit. You know, we don't realize we say implicit now because it has become so ingrained in our society and culture, you know, that we now kind of go, oh, that was just second nature and it's not really, you know, so how do we deal with it? We want everybody now to have implicit bias training. So then you start asking yourself, how does that community, what kind of coping mechanisms did that community develop to cope with this treatment? And it may extend into all different areas you know, which came first, you know, um, did the policy come first or did behavior come first, right? Was the behavior in response to some harsh policy? So once you really start looking at it, you know, this sort of broad concept about how people react um, to certain oppressors, you know, it's it's interesting. Yes, and if this is a conversation we could carry on and yeah. <laughs> um, for for a bit longer, but I, I want to be respectful of your time. So I wonder if there, you know, if there's any advice in particular that you may have uh, for um, whether it's migrants who are here who might be listening, immigrants, expats coming into the United States or even moving to some other country around the world about how to survive, how to thrive. How to keep themselves out of the trafficking ring? <laughs> uh, that's a tough. Yeah, I feel like I yeah I feel like I was sort of fortunate. The people that I that I run into that that helped me. Um, but one thing I would say: you can't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be passive. Don't be shy. Don't suffer in silence. I guess you know if you need assistance, you know, um, find somebody church. You know, somebody within the community that you feel that you can go to and and ask, uh, because I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people end up, you know, in a worse situation is because they're either feel ashamed, fearful. The the alternative is worse. You have to one ask somebody for help, and hopefully, you know, they can get you into that the, the right place. The other thing that I would say is, you know, you gotta have a plan. You know. Um, and it doesn't have to be detailed where you're going to stick to everything, but generally you got to have broad strokes about before you even move, what are you going to do? You, you know, just picking up and going somewhere where you, you don't know anything. You know, when I decided to, uh, to move to the U S I had friends that were already here. I reached out to them. You know, you had a place that you could go, you could sleep, you can, you know, kind of get your way around. I knew what I was going to do or what I wanted to do. It wasn't probably wasn't what I wanted to do, you know, for the rest of my life, but it was that small step that I go, okay, fine. I'm going to go from this place to this place. And then you sort of uh, build from there. Education was one of the things I I wanted to pursue and I was able to do that. Um, That was kind of one of the main things on my plan was to continue, um, you know, the educational path. So you got to have, you got to reach out and have at least a network of people, you know, you're going to be unfamiliar with the laws and the ways and the customs and things like that. But the one thing you can rely on at least is to reach out to somebody, you know, within the community that you're going to go that can sort of help you navigate the system. It's always going to be tougher if you just kind of blindly, you know, jump and you don't have basic needs. You're going to need a place to sleep, you know, eat. 
and you know to figure out you know what your plan is but you gotta have somebody some network that that those assets that we're talking about you gotta start with the network of people that you know right yeah because otherwise and don't move from overseas and go to a country not knowing where you're going exactly how legitimate whatever situation you're getting i heard of a young lady who asked her uncle to buy a ticket for her. The uncle said, she said, oh, I have a job lined up, bought the ticket. She's getting on a bus to go to somewhere in South or North Carolina. She doesn't have a phone number. She doesn't have a name. She just was told to meet at some place at the train station. She doesn't, she doesn't, what work was this? And so be careful when you're getting into these very sketchy situations that you could potentially be a trafficking victim or worse, you know? And so, um, Take the doctor's advice and, and research and, and make sure you have a very solid uh, network on the other side before you leave your home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, again, every story that you hear, you know, kind of starts off like that. You know, um, you don't know who is waiting for you on the other end. Mm-hmm. You know, and lots of times, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's willingly. Sometimes, you know, a family member may say, hey, you can go do X, you know, for the time being until, you know, right. and you go and next thing you end up in, you know, a situation where you can't get yourself out of, you know. So you're always, even though when, even though it's family, if you even smell that there's some illegality in it, you know, don't do it. Always keep it on the up and up because one of the things that makes you even more vulnerable is if you're afraid to come forward because you think you did something wrong. Right. So, do it legally. If you do it legally, you're in the country legally and something happens, going to the authorities is always the option, you know? And unfortunately, if people, you know, if you decide that you're going to come in without the appropriate papers or, or things like that, you're putting yourself even at risk because it's one of the, the, you know, pressure points that a trafficker will use to keep you in a bad situation. You know, if you leave, I'm going to turn you into the authorities. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Yes. Nice bookend on everything. I thank you so much, doctor, for your time. It's been quite informational. I've learned a lot listening to your stories and um, quite sobering just how serious the issue is and how um, the numbers are increasing. And uh, oh my goodness, it seems to heading to, to be like perhaps the number one issue if we don't really move with legislation and, and other actions to kind of curb this. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much. I mean, you know, I'm always happy to share, you know, my, uh, my experiences on the topic because I think it's a really important thing to really, you know, try to put an end to. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your work. All the very best to you. Much success. Thank you for your time on the show today. That's yeah, sure. Thank you. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.